read the scriptures in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, This is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. It explains how and why we should worship. It warns what can happen if we do not worship, but instead harden our hearts. This call to worship is not given to the nations, like Psalm 96, but to God's people. It is addressed to the covenant community, to those who bear the sign of God's special claim on their life, whether it is circumcision in the Old Covenant or baptism in the New Covenant. Psalm 95 is not an arrogant assertion of an insignificant nation trying to bolster their favorite deity by outshouting the competition. Psalm 95 expresses the wondering realization of an enlightened people who are responding to the self-revelation of the unique and only God. He has satisfied his holiness and justice so that he may gather a people. His people respond with adoration, confession, and thanksgiving for who he is and what he has accomplished. This psalm directs us to a holy reverence of God's majesty and a sincere dread of his justice. This psalm produces a desire to please the Lord and to fear to offend him. The message of Psalm 95 is a challenge to great sectors of the church in which the art of spiritual worship has been entirely lost. In place of worship is a strange informed production called the program. The program is designed to manipulate your feelings for self-gratification or self-satisfaction. Psalm 95 presents a contrast to the manipulation of programs. Psalm 95 begins with a bunch of lettuces. The voice of the psalmist urges us six times to join him in worship. Let us, near the end of verse 7, 
there's a dramatic different voice who speaks. It is the direct speech of God himself. From Psalm 95, we will illustrate major theological dynamics revealed in Scripture. We will conclude with two pairs of doctrines. First, the relationship between election and covenant. And second, the relationship between justification and sanctification. At the very center of this psalm is verse 7. For he is our God, and we are his, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That statement exalts the uniqueness of God and of his people. The outline to this call to worship is in three movements. A call to rejoice, verses 1 through 5. A call to reverence, verses 6, the first part of verse 7. And a call to respond, verse 7 through 11. Each movement begins with an exhortation and is followed by an explanation. Call to rejoice. The exhortation to confess. The opening exhortation is, oh, come. We are invited to approach God. Come is an overture of grace of God in the gospel to us. You are invited to approach God's presence. It is remarkable that this God, who banished Adam and Eve from the garden because of their sin, should speak to us and say, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. The invitation comes to us from the lips of our Savior, who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Singing opens our mouth to exalt the greatness and faithfulness of our God. Shouting shows the exuberance of our praise. In these first two verses, worship is energetic. There is a jubilant expression, shouting and singing joyfully. But there is also a careful confession of who the Lord is. Worship is not only energetic, worship is also rational. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 identifies the objects of worship by two names, Lord and Rock. The uppercase Lord is the divine name explained to Moses at the burning bush. It is the covenant name, I am, or I am who I am. This name reveals God as he who is, he who has been, he who exists. Self-existent God has covenanted to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants. He both reveals himself to his people and redeems his people from their bondage. As the rock of our salvation is not only the stable foundation of all things, but he is the source of life. And this anticipates the major theme of the third movement when we come to the call to respond and the flowing of water from the rock. And it anticipates Paul's application that the rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The best offering or sacrifice that God's people can bring to him is thanksgiving and jubilant expressions and thoughtful confessions. Thanksgiving follows praise. 
For when one declares God's attributes and works, he cannot help but be thankful for these. <coughs> Praise leads directly to thanksgiving. The exhortation is followed by an explanation. The explanation, verses 3 through 5. Surrounding nations imagine the Lord to be merely a local deity, the God of a small nation, and therefore one of the inferior deities. The psalmist utterly repudiates this such an idea. Idolaters tolerated many gods and many lords, giving each a certain measure of respectability. The monotheism of the Hebrews was not content with this concession. It rightly claimed for the Lord the chief place and supreme honor. The Lord is the great God. The ancient Hebrews used great as associated with royalty and especially with deity. The great king is an expression of one who is over all. The great king is the king of kings and lord of lords. His attribute of utter sovereignty is given, this attribute of utter sovereignty is given to Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy and twice in Revelation. He is the ultimate authority over all creation. All of the gods of the peoples are idols. This affirms the supremacy of the God of Israel over the whole earth. Look more closely at verses 4 and 5. We have a vertical and horizontal dimension. The vertical dimension, the depths and heights, the horizontal, the sea and the land, emphasize God's sovereignty. God's greatness is expressed by a poetic device sometimes called mirrorism. Two opposites assume everything in between, or two poles that are inclusive. The expression is, is like saying something is from A to Z, not meaning merely the first and last letters of the alphabet, but all the letters in between. It's like bookends that hold all of the books. God's greatness is expressed by one extreme of the depths of earth and reaches to the other extremes of the heights of the hills. <clears throat> From the bottom to the top, my thoughts are directed vertically. The second inclusion is the extremes of sea and land, or wet and dry. From left to right, our thoughts are directed horizontally. These expressions indicate that God's greatness is comprehensive, absolute, and infinite. The call to rejoice leads to a call to reverence. Verses 6, the first part of verse 7. The exhortation to reverence. The first and principal concern of worship is not what I may get out of the occasion or the experience of worship, but rather the obligation I have to lower myself, prostrate, bow, kneel before this God creator of the universe and the Lord of the covenant. We must not fall down to our lady, but to our Lord. Not to any martyr, but to our maker. Not to any saint, but to our savior. Not to the sun, moon, and stars, but to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
It was a change in mood from joyful exuberance to somber reverence. And true worship includes a variety of moods. There should be light and there should be shade. This is the deep and basic note of worship without which the joyful noise at the opening will be shrill and self-indulgent. Each main verb in verse 6 describes as getting low, lower, and lowest in the presence of God. We are to fall down, to kneel, we are to prostrate ourselves, which is the meaning of the word worship. It is a public act of homage. Worship is a political act of making our faith public, our allegiance known, and making known to our fellow citizens that we belong to God. Drawing near probably refers to entering the temple. <coughs> Bowing is an act of humiliation before the Lord. In other Psalms, we find physical expressions of worship, such as clapping hands or lifting hands. Clapping is another form of exuberance. Lifting hands is an act of prayer and praise. The symbol seems to be that Israel lifted open hands before God so that he would fill them. Somewhat parallel is Psalm 81 verse 10, where the Lord says to his people, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Are those external, external acts of worship meant to be expressed the reality of faith and of the heart? Where the heart is cold and indifferent, the external acts are just hypocrisy and are utterly rejected by God. Do these external expressions of worship continue to have a role in New Testament worship? Paul may give warrant to them. In Ephesians 3, verse 14, he writes, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, 8, he writes, I therefore desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In some traditions, they literally kneel on benches. The problem is that tends to an outward action without inward sincerity. Many Christians have understood Paul to speak metaphorically in these verses, concentrating on the internal, not the external. Generally, Christians have believed that such external actions are indifferent, not absolutely required, or absolutely forbidden. Different cultures and different personalities vary in physical expressions of emotion. Whatever the actions, the Bible is clear that they must flow from a sincere heart and not mere formalism or theatrical self-expression. All acts of worship must support the essence of worship, confessing the greatness of our God with sincere hearts. The exhortation to reverence. The explanation first part of verse 7. At the center of this psalm stands a firm confession of faith. He is our God. The call to worship at the beginning of the psalm 
and the warning at the last part of the psalm are united in this great truth. If he is our God, we must worship him with great devotion. If he is our God, then we must be faithful in living before him. The warning is precisely necessary against the temptation to allow our worship to become an empty form. The metaphors in this part of verse 7 express God's commitment, which is constant. He is our God, and his care, which is all-sufficient, his pasture, and his personal, his hand. The expression people of his pasture emphasizes the provisions of God. The expression sheep of his hand emphasizes the protection of God. John Calvin comments, His people are here spoken of according as the people of his pasture, whom he watches over with particular care and loads with blessings of every kind. The passage might have run more clearly had the psalmist called them the flock of his pasture and the people of his hand, or had he merely added and of his flock. The figure might have been brought out more consistently and plainly, but his object was less elegancy of expression than upon pressing upon the people a sense of the inestimable favor conferred upon them in their adoption, by virtue of which we are called to live under the grateful guardianship of God through the employment of every species of blessings. John Calvin. Augustine notes how elegantly the psalmist inverts the order of the words. We expect to read, we are the sheep of his pasture, the people of his hand. By inverting the order of the people and the sheep become the same thing. The underlying fact is the determining election of God or that he chooses his people or sheep before the foundation of the world. The call to rejoice and the call to reverence leads to a call to respond. A dynamic different voice speaks near the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, this illustrates that the verse numbers are not part of the inspired text, but are devised later to help locate passages. One way to identify the change of speakers is to notice the use of the pronouns. For example, in Psalm 91, the first two verses begin in the first person singular, I. Then the psalmist changes to the second person singular, you, in verses 3 through 13. Then it returns to the first person, I, in verses 14 through 16. If you think about the exalted statements, promises, and purposes expressed in Psalm 91, 
They are truths only fully appropriate for a divine person. In Psalm 91, we may distinguish the three voices of the Trinity. The voice of the Son, the commentator in verses 1 and 2. The voice of the Spirit as the counselor in verses 3 through 13. And the voice of the Father as commander in verses 14 through 16. We hear an inter-Trinitarian communication that focuses on the incarnate Son of God in his ministry to redeem his people. As an example of the change of pronouns. Now in Psalm 95, the original speaker is the leader within the congregation of the source. Let us sing, let us shout, let us come, let us shout, let us kneel, let us worship. Suddenly, without warning, in a dramatic manner, a different person speaks directly to the congregation. It's not reported speech, but direct speech. In the opening verses, verses 1 through 7a, the psalmist speaks in his own person. But from the second half of verse 7 onwards, the speaker changes. It is now God who speaks directly to his people. The pattern of exhortation and explanation continues. The exhortation to respond. When God says today... That's different from our use of today, by which we mean the present 24 hours. But God does not live in time. For God, there is no yesterday and no tomorrow. All time, all the centuries, is present before him. To him, there is no passage of time. Everything is complete. All of his plans and purposes are fulfilled. We are the ones locked in time. The Holy Spirit, who spoke to the Hebrews in the Old Testament, is speaking to the church in the New Testament. The great danger of the church in any generation is grieving the Holy Spirit by not hearing and heeding him. <coughs> there is a huge danger that when God's people come to worship, that they do not listen to him. We get so caught up with what we have to say, seeing what we have to sing, do what we have to do, that we forget to pause and hear what God has to say. The language in this section is taken from an incident in the history of Israel. It was about a month or two after the Exodus, just before they reached Mount Sinai. Israel camped at Rephidim, and there was no water. Forty years later, they do the same thing at Kadesh. They complain again against their leadership, against the leadership of Moses and the lack of water. God's people tested God. They demand proof of his presence. The high point of worship is when God addresses us, not when we are addressing him. The high point is when we are silent and God through his word is speaking to us. The exhortation to respond. Now the explanation verses 8 through 10. Explanation to the exhortation to hear God begins in verse 8. In the rebellion, in the day of trial, these are two place names which sum up the sour, skeptical spirit of Israel in their desert journey and linked to the earthly crisis at Rephidim and the climactic one at Kadesh, which cost Moses 
not enter the promised land. The warning takes Israel back to one of the crucial moments in Israel's history as it traveled through the wilderness. This moment is critical because it is referred to repeatedly in the Old and New Testament. The primary incident is described in Exodus chapter 17. Israel camps at Rephidim where there is a shortage of water. The people complain that they will die of thirst. This complaint is staggering. God, who defeated the Egyptians in ten plagues, who opened the Red Sea for Israel to pass through, who drowned the pursuing Egyptian army, who provided food and water in the wilderness, who led them by a cloud of pillar by day and fire by night, now hears the complaint of his people. The place will be known as Mirabah or Masa, which means grumbling and complaining. There's something special about the complaint. This is the place they tested God. What exactly was the sin of the people in putting God to the test? The answer is clear in Exodus 17, verse 7. They tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At the heart of their grumbling and testing was a lack of faith. Their sin was not praying for water or even wondering where water would come from. Their sin was allowing their need of water to lead them to doubt the presence and the love of God. The test is whether the Lord is among his people or not. That is a question about faith. That is a question that exposes unbelief. The hardening of the heart is not for a moment, but is a fundamental rejection of God. It is possible to be a member of the covenant community. It is possible to have the sign of the covenant through the circumcision or baptism. It is possible to be sincere at confessing the faith, but later it is revealed that confession was never true. The last verse, verse 11, is an expectation of rest. My rest is more than one meeting as Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 make clear. In relation to Exodus, it meant God's land to settle in and peace and joy to enjoy it. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 argues that the psalm still offers us, by its emphatic today, a rest beyond anything that Joshua won, namely a share in God's own Sabbath rest, the enjoyment of his finished work, not merely of creation, but also of redemption. The quitters who turn back to the wilderness may be but pale shadows of ourselves if we draw back from our great inheritance. Rest, in Psalm 95, refers to the promised land, which is a sign, a pointer, a type of the eternal rest for God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. The promised land symbolized the ultimate rest of God's people that they would enjoy. God's purpose was not that his people would live in a narrow band of land, but that they would inherit the earth. The theme of rest is central to the Old Testament as both a place and a time. As a place, 
It is where the Ark of the Covenant rests in the Promised Land. As a time, it is a Sabbath rest, a day of rest. Both of these rests in the Old Testament are types. They point beyond themselves. The place of rest, the Promised Land, points to the new heavens and the new earth. The time of rest, as one day out of seven, points to the eternal rest, where there will not be a holy day distinct from common days, and all days will be holy for the people of God in God's presence. God finished his work and entered into his rest. One day God's people will finish their work and enter into God's rest. What is the single most important need in the present moment is that we should learn to worship God who is king and maker and our shepherd. Worship is the highest and noblest activity in which any human or angelic creature can engage. We must come before the great king who is above all gods, the great creator who made all things. We must come internally intentionally and intelligently. Christian worship is not some counseling session or Sunday school class or form of entertainment. It is a call to be occupied with God by rejoicing, reverencing, and responding. There are several applications of Psalm 95 that we should think about. Psalm 95 illustrates the importance of the message and not the messenger. Some years ago, a visiting pastor was substituting for the famed pastor Henry Ward Beecher. A large audience assembled to hear the popular preacher. At the appointed time, the visiting pastor, visiting preacher, entered the pulpit. Learning that Beecher was not to speak, several people moved toward the exit. The visiting pastor stood up and called out, All who have come to here, to this auditorium today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now leave. All who have come to worship God, keep your seats. No one left. Psalm 95 is a warning to the present generation, to you, to hear the word of God, to take heed to its exhortations. To understand its explanations, to believe and obey its directions. Be mindful that it is easier to speak than to listen. Are you listening to the prayers and preaching, or are you talking to yourself? It's easier to daydream than to concentrate how often during a sermon do you hear something that reminds you of something that reminds you of something else? It requires discipline to concentrate on what someone is saying. To hear God's most holy word is one of the prime acts of worship. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, it quotes Psalm 95, verse 7, saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, 
This citation illustrates that Scripture, because the Holy Spirit speaks it, does not become the Word of God when we apprehend it, but is God's Word. Beware of those who say, listen for the Word of God, instead of listen to the Word of God. Verse 7 is central. It contains the doctrines of election and covenant. God's electing purpose is expressed, for he is our God and we are the people. Election is the foundation for faith. It is the heavenly perspective of God's initiative. As declared in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. The same perspective is found in Hebrews, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election is the foundation of faith. God's covenanting purposes is expressed. Today, if you hear his voice, Covenant is the expression of faith. It is the earthly perspective of man's response. This is declared in Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me and hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. The same perspective is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Covenant is the expression of faith. Election is the foundation of faith. Covenant is the expression of faith. Verse 7 is also the division between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. <coughs> justification is the foundation for the call to come before God to worship him in verses 1 through 7. This is declared in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, Philippians 3 verse 9, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is from God by faith. Justification is our change of status by what God has done for us. Justification is the basis for the call to rejoice and the call to reverence, verses 1 through 7. Sanctification is the response to the call to come before God and to worship him. Response in verses 7 through 11. The application is expressed in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And we who do believe do enter that rest. Sanctification is our change of nature by what God does in us. Sanctification is the basis for the call to respond, verses 1 through 7. Another application, Psalm 95, illustrates the dialogical principle of worship. 
God speaks to us. We speak to God in our praise and thanksgiving. God speaks to us in his word and sacraments. There is a danger of disappointment in life that can lead you to become disappointed in God. You cast off God's promises and commands. You demand a fresh evidence of God's faithfulness today. You demand that God pass your test. In crises of faith, we may express our confusion and pain fully and plainly to the Lord, but we must not test the Lord. We must not grumble behind his back and doubt in a fundamental way whether God can be trusted. Such doubt is an expression of profound unbelief and stunning ingratitude. Such doubt evoke the anger and punishment of God. How do you know if your faith is genuine? One of the biblical tests is that under trial you do not turn away, you do not doubt God's presence and goodness, you do not complain about God's providence. Worship the Lord by rejoicing, reverencing, and responding. Mighty God, Father of all mercies, we are your unworthy servants, but we give you most humble and heartfelt thanks for all of your goodness and loving kindness to us. We bless you for our creation and preservation and for all the blessings of life. And we praise you for the inestimable love and the redemption of your people by the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. We beseech that you would give to us a due sense of all of your mercies, <coughs> that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful that we would show our praise not only with our lips, but with our lives, by giving ourselves to your service, by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory and honor, world without end. Amen.